I thought 2020 wasn't tough enough, so I thought, why not dive into a theological concept that is difficult to understand, let alone explain? However, it is one thing that I'm sensing as a pastor as we are getting into times in which our faith and what we believe is being challenged. And I think that uh, if we don't understand what it is that we believe, what can happen is when, when our faith or our doctrine or our theology belief system is beginning to be challenged, if we don't fully understand it, uh, it can shake our faith. And, and then what can happen is everything else begins to crumble underneath it. And so uh, I think it's really important for us in our spiritual formation, as we talked about last week, that this is kind of the theme for this year, uh, for us to really dive into what is it that we believe? Why, why do we believe these things? And, uh, and how does it affect our everyday life? And so we're going to take a look uh, over the next few weeks at the personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe growing up, you heard the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Ghost. I always was terrified of that because the ghost, in, when I was a kid, is not, in, I mean, other than Casper the Friendly Ghost, uh, ghost was not something that you really wanted in your life. Uh, and so the Holy Ghost was kind of this uh, oxymoron. It was like, how can a ghost be holy? And there's a young boy who uh, came home from from kids' church one Sunday morning, and his dad, in the car ride home, asked him uh, how what he learned at kids' church. You know, what did you learn in class, son? And he's like, well, I just want to know about the East Coast. And, and his dad's like, well, what about the East Coast? He's like, well, he's like, I kept hearing in class about the Father and the Son and the whole West Coast. And, and I just want to know, does the East Coast need Jesus too? And the dad responded, I, I think it's the Holy Ghost, not the whole West Coast. But we can all agree that, that the Southeast Coast loves Jesus. The Northeast Coast, probably not so much. But we can all agree that the West Coast definitely needs Jesus, right? That's why we all moved away from there. I want to start off by saying that uh, what we're about to talk about uh, today, what I'm about to share with you, is really impossible for us to fully understand. 
Like this concept of the Trinity is, is really one of those areas where you don't really hear a lot of sermons about it. Uh, you don't hear a lot of messages on the Trinity, and, and honestly, it's because it's difficult to explain. It's difficult to understand, and if you've struggled throughout your faith uh, in trying to explain this when people press you, you're in good company. See, we can't comprehend that which we have no tangible expression of. We can try and come up with illustrations and examples, but honestly, they all fall short. We can try to explain the, the majesty and the, uh, the goodness, even the goodness of God. We can sing about it and we can try to explain it, but to really understand it fully is, is almost impossible. There's a story of a little girl drawing, and her mother asked what it was that she was drawing, and she says, I'm drawing a picture of God. The mother tells her, well, that's impossible, as no one knows what God looks like. The girl looks up at her mom and says, well, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> I'm not as confident in that, as that little girl that you will have a perfect picture of the Trinity when we're done. But I am hoping that as we go through this series, that, it, that I'll be able to at least shed some light into uh, the, the theological doctrinal concept of the Trinity, uh, a concept that is often skipped over or left unexplained. John Wesley, uh, so I feel like I'm in good company, said about the Trinity, bring, a, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. I don't think, I went back and I, I searched in my notes whether or not I've ever preached a message on the Trinity, and I, I don't think I have, uh, not as a theological concept. And there's some reasons for that. One is the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, which is really not all that unusual because there are a number of different theological concepts that that aren't found explicitly in the Bible, that scholars and the church have really embraced over, uh, over the 2,000 years. But, but the absence of like a direct teaching on the Trinity in Scripture makes it really hard to find a passage of Scripture to kind of, uh, as, a, as a starting point uh, for it. Uh, the passage that I'm about to read has hints of this Trinity relationship, this Trinitarian relationship of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but you have to look carefully for it. It comes from John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you in all the truth. He will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The second reason I really haven't preached directly on the Trinity is because it is a topic or a concept from a... Uh, discipline that is called systematic theology. I took this class in Bible college, and uh, maybe you have heard of systematic theology. It's really an attempt by theologians to craft 
a coherent understanding of the works of God. Uh, Typically, systematic theologies are crafted from Scripture, from church tradition, and the overarching philosophy of the particular theologian who's writing it. So the topics of systematic theology tend to be conceptual and honestly are really difficult to preach on in a way that doesn't cause you to want to fall asleep. It's, it's, not, it's, it's a little like this when you're teaching systematic theology and uh, it's hard to find humor. There's no more jokes in the rest of the message. In fact, you're just going to have to uh, put on your thinking caps today. The primary reason I think I haven't preached specifically on the Trinity is because it's one of the doctrines that although Christians worldwidely affirm, worldwidely, worldwide affirm, uh, it's really difficult to explain. The idea of one God in three persons, three in one, is a concept that we have uh, difficult getting our, our minds around because it's, it's not something that we currently function in. And over the years, there's lots of illustrations given, but I don't think any of them are really all that helpful. Uh, I've heard the illustration used that the Trinity is like an apple, that you've got the, the, the outside of the apple, right, the, the peel, and then you've got the flesh of the apple, and then you have the core of the apple. But, but of course, that doesn't really work because we know that God is not an apple. And we know that you throw out the core and you can't really throw out God in this. And so it's, it, it, it doesn't work. I've, I've heard it explained. I think it was St. Patrick that explained that, that the Trinity is like a clover leaf. It's, it's got three parts, but it's all one uh, flower. Is it a flower? Is it a weed? I don't know. But whatever it is, that it's, it's, it's that. And, and yet, that doesn't really work for us either because we know that God is not a clover or a flower. It leaves us just a little bit short. Several years ago, an interesting book titled The Shack became a bestseller, and there was a movie about it uh, that, that came afterwards. And the story was compelling. It was, it was actually really good. But one aspect of of that that really sparked a discussion and really some controversy was how the author represented the Trinity in the book. Uh, For God the Father, Young portrayed God as a large black woman who was outgoing, warm-hearted, and kind. For God the Holy Spirit, Young's persona was that of an Asian woman dressed in bright colors who seemed to dart in and out of sight like like Tinkerbell, kind of. And for Jesus, the author pretty much stayed with the stereotype, which was uh, Jesus as a workman with jeans and a flannel shirt and a tool belt. And each of these personas of God exhibited a unique characteristic, and each had a very specific role to play in the fictional story. But as as creative as it was, this portrayal of the Trinity, uh, it was compelling and it was insightful, but it really fell short again of the theological clear definition of the Trinity. 
Maybe the best two examples that I've heard explain the Trinity are one by C.S. Lewis uh, out of his book, Mere Christianity. If you've not read that book, it's a real easy read. Uh, I highly recommend that for you. But he explained that we are two-dimensional beings in a three-dimensional world, that that in two dimensions you can draw lines, and I'm probably grossly uh, explaining his, uh, his explanation of this, but, but in two dimensions you can draw lines, and if you draw four lines, you can draw a box, a square, I should say. You could draw a square in two dimensions. But if you take that square and you add five more to that, you can actually draw a cube, And that in the concept of the Trinity, although that there is a square made up of six squares, it becomes a cube. So it's clear, right? Exactly what the Trinity is. (laughs) Yeah. I'll explain it this way. I I heard this illustration. Actually, Kelly, can you hand me my phone? Uh, You guys will understand this one a little bit better. Uh, anything that involves your phone, you'll, you'll grab hold of. So I could have this phone in my hand, and, uh, and you could ask the question, what is that? And my response to you would be, well, this is a, this is a phone. This, this, that's a, a nature question. What is the nature of this phone? It does not have life. It's not, the the question isn't, who is this? I know we call it Siri and all, you know, whatever, but but the nature question is, what is this? And I would say, well, it's a non-living digital device that we are all attached way too much to. You could also ask the question directed towards me, what is that? It's a little rude of a question, but you could ask it, what is it? And that is a nature question as, as to what am I? I am a human being. I have life. I breathe. That, that, that is a nature question. You could also ask, who is that to me? And I would tell you that I am Ryan, that my whatness is my nature, not my whiteness, my whatness is my nature. It's too soon for that stuff. <laughs> my whoness is my personhood. Is that easy to understand? So in the case of, in the context of the Trinity, the whatness is the nature, the whoness is the personhood of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all one nature, three personhoods. Is it easy to understand? No. No, we don't have three personhoods. We don't have a concept for, I don't have three personhoods. I know, you know, I know what you're thinking, oh, there's people who have multiple personalities and all that. No, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about three persons, almost like three minds. We don't have that. And so it's difficult for us to understand this concept. But could I propose the fact that if we could only conceive of a God who is like us, then he's not a very big God. 
right? That if, if we can fully understand it in our limited capacity and our humanness, then we don't serve a great God. Anyone that says that if I can't explain it, I don't believe it, I would just push back and say, well, it, do you believe in an eternal God? Do you believe in eternity? And oftentimes, people of faith would say, yes, I, I believe in eternity. Even people outside the Christian faith, whether you're Muslim or whatever, that, that they would believe in eternity, and yet as an individual, we don't comprehend eternal things because we have a beginning and an end. And so for us to have to fully understand a concept in order for us to have faith or believe in it isn't really practical in this concept, and I would just argue limits the God that we serve. So this idea of a triune God, the, the Trinity, is a difficult idea to grasp. And it's been difficult for Christians from the early church all the way down to today. And some attempts have failed miserably to capture the, the three-in-oneness of God. And these imperfect attempts to define the Trinity become heresy. See, a, a heresy is a doctrine or teaching that is incompatible with the church's view of Scripture or incompatible with the traditional understanding of those who have gone before us. And uh, there are two primary heresies of the Trinity, although there are probably more than two, but primary ones are modalism and subordinationism. First, modalism, that there were those who said that God was one God who just appeared in three different roles or three different modalities as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A good illustration of this is one that I have heard used to describe the Trinity, but unfortunately it falls short. Again, that, that there is just three different versions of God. The, this example you could use, uh, although ineffectively, would be that I am Ryan Coffey, but I am husband to Kelly. I am father to Jacob, Claire, and Marley. I am pastor of Lifehouse Church, that I am one but have different roles. That is the heresy of modalism. Mode, thank you, modalism. The other heresy is that God the Father is supreme over the Son and the Holy Spirit, that they're subordinate to him in some way. Uh, the details of all of that are not as important, but I'll just say, if you trust me, that is not what the Bible teaches. There are other things that can creep into the church, and I'm just explaining these things because if we don't understand them and if we are not careful, they can creep into our own life, but they can also creep into the church. One is that we focus only on the Holy Spirit. That is a well-known fact that there are movements in the church that have placed great emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. 
They have emphasized the filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which are prioritized by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is actually has a positive effect in our Christian life. We are a part of a denomination that is considered a Pentecostal spirit-filled denomination. We believe in the power and the presence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our everyday life. We see this reintroduced in Christian worship, in, in concepts, in understandings of things that have at times been forgotten. However, excessive and or exclusive emphasis on the Holy Spirit can be dangerous. Right? When we speak of the Holy Spirit only, uh, when we speak of the Holy Spirit only and neglect the Father and the Son, what happens is we develop a lopsided form of Christianity that always descends into emotionalism and a form of Christianity that really kind of has a loss of order and uh, taken to the most extreme circumstances can result in cultish behavior. Someone once described the Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity, meaning he doesn't draw attention to himself, but brings Jesus into focus. Then there's the Jesus-only perspective, that if some put all of their emphasis on the Spirit, others largely group, uh, a large group commit a different error, placing an exclusive stress on the person of Jesus, meaning that the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit are completely ignored. This group of people think nothing else matters but my personal Savior, and everything is about Jesus and me, Jesus and me, Jesus and me, and, and honestly can be reinforced in some of our modern-day worship songs. When we uh, sing about Jesus as our friend and, and all that, sometimes what can happen is we lose the divinity of Jesus, and what happens is we begin to place ourselves almost at the same playing ground, almost on equal terms with Jesus. That Christianity is not just about Jesus. It's, about, uh, it's not just about a personal Savior. That when people came to Jesus, what did Jesus do? He always pointed them to the Father. Just as the Spirit points away from himself to Jesus, Jesus always points to the Father. John chapter 12, verse 49 says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Of course, as Christians, our central focus has to be about Jesus. The, the New Testament is firmly focused on Jesus. And so we don't need to ditch that emphasis, but we have to be careful not to exclude the Holy Spirit, and the Father. And then finally, there is God or Father only thinking, which is found more often in traditional churches and is a faith that's only about God as, or God as Father. And what can happen in this context is if we're not careful, it can become excessively male in orientation and in thinking. And what happens is it can, that can be used in an authoritarian way over people. And those who wish to 
exclude women from any sort of leadership positions in the church or any sort of um, able to speak into the life of the church, use this kind of thinking to, uh, to re, uh, repress, is that the right word? To repress women in the church. Uh, and this, is, this doesn't just take place in, in liturgical churches. It, this creeps in into the Baptist church, even into some Pentecostal churches as well. Our church is egalitarian, but I would just remind you that God is our father. Yes, I mean, we refer to him as the father, but God is not a man. <laughs> God does, is not sexed. And both men and women are made in the likeness and in the image of God. There's also the added problem that God becomes impersonal. That when he is just God distant, then he is like the the. The God who is, uh, as I said earlier, up in the clouds, you know, looking down at us ants down here, kind of trying to figure out life and never intervening or never intersecting into our life. But we know that God, that is not God. God is a personal God. Without Jesus, we don't see the humanity in God. And without the Spirit, we can never have a personal relationship and a joyful relationship with God. All we have is the academic assent to God, and I think that's just a sterile, fear-based faith, honestly. So in order to correct the theological conversation, and I recognize I'm throwing a lot at you this morning. The, you're wishing you would have come to second service and had an extra cup of coffee, but what happened is, is the church then develops these statements, these creeds. You've probably heard of some of them. The first was the Apostles' Creed, which affirms in three statements a belief in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But the Apostles' Creed left the door open for a misunderstanding about the, the, the Trinity. And so then the Nicene Creed was developed, and you're going to be tested on this when we're done, from 325 A.D. and took its final form in 381 A.D. And I'm just going to read it to you because they go into explanation and they, they close any sort of gap when it comes to the Trinity. It says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostle apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So the Nicene Creed 
obviously was geared towards this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. See, there's, but there was this, the, the point is, is that there's this detailed explanation of the person of Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit. And these details were included to correct the notion that God the Father uh, was not superior to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The essence of all three persons of the Godhead was, in other words, the same. We good? But it's one thing to assert something about the Trinity, to say that we believe in the triune God, to embrace even a doctrine that we can't fully comprehend or even explain, but it is another thing entirely to base our understanding of God on what we see God doing. So I'll just make maybe one of the most important statements about the Trinity that I can make this morning. Our understanding of the Trinity is based on what we see God doing in the world. I'll give you some examples. In the Old Testament, God is creator of the world. Of course, God is present as spirit. In fact, it says in the beginning the, that the spirit was hovering over the waters. The Messiah is both prophesied and foreshadowed in various, uh, I'll throw another theological word so that when you go to lunch today, you're going to sound super educated, theophanies, these appearances of God, such as the angel who wrestles with Jacob. But the primary, uh, but primary on the stage of the unfolding drama of the Old Testament is the God of Israel, Yahweh, El Shaddai, Elohim, Adonai, and all of the other names by which God is called and worshiped. And in the New Testament gospel accounts, the emphasis is upon Jesus, his birth, his baptism, his message, his life, death, and resurrection. But then God the Father approves his Son, and the Holy Spirit descends from the clouds like a dove and anoints Jesus for his ministry. In the New Testament book of Acts, in the epistles, the Holy Spirit is at the forefront, equipping, empowering, enabling, and guiding the early church. In the book of Revelation, God the Father, Son, and Spirit are all present, each featured in a way that is both consistent with the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, witnesses to the New Testament. And it brings into picture the kingdom of God in its closing chapters. So that surveys the what is the Trinity question. Even though I'm sure you have more questions now than when we started this message. But to keep this from being just academic, we have to ask the question, why? Why do we care? And I think that this might be, although I made a very important statement, might be the most controversial thing I'll say this morning, is that if you don't believe in a Trinitarian God, then you are not a Christian. And that may sound very judgmental, but it is judgmental. Like, at some point, we have these things, these theological, doctrinal things that, that are close-handed issues. There are things that are open-handed that, that we see throughout Scripture, things that we can agree to disagree on. But when it comes to a Trinitarian God, 
That is a close-handed issue. If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you're playing for a different team. So that's one of the reasons why we care. Another is that this is so important for us to understand and so important for us because the doctrine comes from the lived experiences of God's people as they interpret God's work in this world. The, the second reason why we should care about the Trinity and be aware of the uniqueness of the one in three or the three in one is this, is that without a balanced view of all three persons of the Trinity, we can misrepresent the work of God in this world. If we emphasize some aspects of God in the Old Testament and, and subordinate Jesus and the Holy Spirit, then what happens is we come away with a picture of a God of wrath and judgment who has little compassion. That's how you get preachers who are talking about uh, the uh, hurricanes, uh, you know, destroying New Orleans, you know, that that's the wrath of God, or that tornadoes blowing through Oklahoma is uh, like Job who lost all of his children to a mighty wind that collapsed Job's house. Like, that, that's what happens when you put that emphasis on there. If we emphasize the person of Jesus to the exclusion of God the Father and the Holy Spirit, then we miss out on the fact that God sent Jesus because God so loved the world purpose of God is to redeem the world, not just individuals in it, but the, the salvation of everyone is the work of God. And then if we emphasize the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the experience of the Holy Spirit and the power and the presence, then it's easy to lose sight of God as our creator, as son, as the redeemer, and the role that the Holy Spirit played and plays in both of those aspects of God's work. So that's the downside of why the Trinity is important to us, but here's the upside. First, and I'm going to try to blow through these as fast as we can because we're having communion this morning. The first is, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we find our model for community. As God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit relate to one another, demonstrate love for each other, and work in concert to accomplish the purpose of God in the world, we get the idea of community. We get the idea of what church should look like. This idea of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit has been depicted by Christian scholars using a term called uh, perichoresis. It's a Greek word which means dancing around. It's like you're in a, a dance. And the I like the implications of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit in this divine dance, this, this cohesiveness, interacting with one another and expressing love for one another and complementing the work that each of them have to do. And I wonder if we actually use the Trinity as our model, how that might shift how we function within the church. In the passage we read today, we find some of those elements of mutuality. Jesus says that the Spirit will guide his disciples, glorify Jesus, take what belongs to Jesus and give it to the disciples. But everything Jesus has comes from the Father. 
And that is why the Spirit can make it known to the disciples. Now, if that sounds like circular reasoning, it's because it is. That God the Father creates, God the Son redeems, and God the Spirit illuminates and equips. And so in this dance, if you will, each person of the Godhead complements and builds on the work of the other members of the Trinity. So at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus demonstrates his obedience to the plan of God the Father, and he gets baptized. God the Father announces to the world that this is his Son in whom he is well pleased, his approval. And the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus for ministry. In the early church, the Spirit empowers and equips and emboldens the apostles to tell the good news of Jesus. And then secondly, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we find our mission. So we find our understanding of community, but we also find our mission. Jesus tells the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Just as God the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus sends the apostles and us today to do the Father's work. We are equipped and accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. God's work involves more than just taking individuals to heaven when they die. God's work is to bring in his kingdom on this earth. It is why when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God sends Jesus to bring the peace of God also called salvation, which is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Father and the Son then send the Spirit who equips, empowers, and emboldens the early apostles. Whatever work we have to do in this world, we do from the standpoint of a triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit, redeemed created, redeemed, and enabled to do so. As followers of Jesus, we are loved by the Father, and we are led by the Spirit. As we live in a new awareness of God and all of His expressions as God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, it ought to strengthen our spiritual lives. It it should deepen it. It shouldn't be something that causes more confusion, but actually begins to bring this beautiful understanding of the fact that our God is a God of community, and He is a God who has placed us on mission. That He has a kingdom that He wants to expand, and that the work that God has chosen for us will take on this new vitality and this new sense of urgency that we are not just awaiting some heavenly thing, but that actually he is working and moving through each and every one of us. It doesn't mean that we have to understand it all. It doesn't mean we have to comprehend the intricacies of the the communal relationship of of the Trinity, but 
But what it does mean is that we have to have as a foundation an understanding that we have a triune God. I don't fully understand all of it. And if you were in that camp, which I think you probably are, we're in good company. St. Augustine, one of the intellectual giants of the first century, he didn't understand it either. And the story goes that he was struggling to understand the Trinity. He, went, he goes for a walk on the beach, and he sees this boy digging, a sand with a, uh, digging in the sand with a seashell. And Augustine watches, puzzled, as the boy runs back and forth to the ocean, filling the seashell with water, and then taking it to the hole that he had made and, and pouring it into the hole. And when he asked him what he was doing, the, the young boy replied, I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. And then peace came to Augustine as he realized this is exactly what he had been trying to do, to fit the great mysteries of God into his mind. See, we don't need to understand everything about the Trinity, but just be shaped in our faith and understanding of God by it. I hope as we continue on in this series, as we go into the intricacies of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that we will not be discouraged by a lack of fully conceptualizing or understanding the Trinity, but it will actually guide and lead us into a better and deeper love for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll leave you uh, with this passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, maybe one of the the most famous Scriptures of uh, the Trinity. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, so the Son, and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We're going to receive communion this morning, and one of the challenges that I've always had about communion is uh, and Lucy's going to come, and Pastor Lucy's going to come and lead us in this. But just in full disclosure, one of the challenges I've had uh, growing up in the church and trying to conceptualize the Trinity is like, I don't understand how Jesus, who's God, you know, takes on the sin, is, is paying for the sins of the world to God the Father. And that it seems like he's just, there's this exchange from one pocket to the next. If, if it's God, then how does that work? And I think that the Trinity actually doesn't cause more problems, but helps us understand it better. In that you have the nature, it is God, but you have the per- person of Jesus, the real person of Jesus who who goes to the cross, who goes to a real cross. And and it's not just the Father is some distant personhood from the Son. Yes, they share the same nature, but they are different in their persona. They they are different in that the Son can go to a real cross and, and die for our real sins to a real Father who we have in heaven, that the real payment has been made to God the Father. I would just encourage you as you receive communion and as Lucy shares with us the importance of communion, that it wouldn't be something that causes question as much as it begins to sink into our hearts the 
beautiful, sacrificial act that Jesus did on the cross. Let's pray.